0: This is another in our extra COVID-19 episodes. They're shorter. The audio quality won't be as good, uh, but the intellectual content will be every bit as good. Today's guest is Robin Hanson, a professor of economics at George Mason University, and he has some very interesting and perhaps to some people startling ideas about uh, how to manage the COVID-19 virus and what lessons we should learn from this to be ready for next time. Why don't we start out, Robin, with uh, uh, the idea of dosage effects, something that I've seen relatively little in the media, the idea that the uh, strength of the infection you get, and hence the risk of having the infection is in some fashion, linear or nonlinear, I don't know, uh, probably related to the amount of exposure uh, one gets. Uh, What can you say about that?
1: Well, I've seen three media articles over the last couple weeks, one in the New York Times, one in the New Yorker, and one in uh, a, a British paper. So it's, it's not completely neglected and the usual tone is, well, people make the simplifying assumption that you're either infected or not, but there's actually the subtly and it's kind of interesting and there's this literature on it. And in fact, in the medical literature, there is this huge literature on what they call viral load because that's relatively easy to measure. That is, they, they look in your bloodstream and see how many viruses there are. And that correlates with a lot of things. People with higher viral load typically have more symptoms and, um, die more and all those sorts of things. Now, uh, the initial viral load is what we're talking about as a dose. That is the moment you get infected, how big a chunk do you get? Now, people believe that that makes a lot of difference and that's one of the main rationales for wearing masks because not just to cut the chance of an infection, but to cut the dose that you get when you get it. But in terms of research, it's thin because it's hard to actually control and measure the initial dose we don't do a lot of infecting people on purpose in order to measure that. So, uh, But there is a long history. Uh, not only do we have like two studies uh, in the last few decades where we've seen an effect of dose on death rates for humans for a virus. One is measles, where it's about a factor of 14. Another is SARS, where it's about a factor of three. And these are different variations in the dose that naturally happen. But two centuries ago, <laughs> uh, over, we used to uh, do low dose infection of smallpox as a deliberate way to reduce death. So for example, uh, George Washington at Valley Forge, uh, a big set of US troops in Canada got wiped out, which is why the US doesn't control Canada at the moment. And then George Washington's the troops at Valley Forge were threatened. And so he uh, adopted variolation, which was um, reduced the death rate from a typical 20 to 30% from smallpox down to one to 2%. And that was via a deliberate small dose. So. We know there's this big effect. So some people have talked about it in the media, but there's two things they haven't mentioned, and I'm not sure it's because they don't know about it or kind of scared to mention. One is that it creates, it makes lockdowns more problematic. So um, two extreme kinds of ways you can get a, a dose. One is by say kissing a family member or spending a lot of time close to a family member, and then you're likely to get a big dose. Uh, if they're infected uh, and you aren't kissing them the first moment they got infected, then you're going to get a lot. Another way you might get infected is, say, touching a door handle somewhere out in the world where somebody else touched it in the last few hours. And in that case, you're likely to get a small dose or, say, walking past someone who's breathing out in the wild. And, uh, you know, those low doses would have you know, much lower mortality rates. Again, according to the data we've seen, that's say a factor of 3 to 30. And so with lockdowns, we are slowing the rate at which people get infected but unfortunately raising possibly the death rate when they do get infected by a plausibly large margin that's that's a concern so we, we need this lockdown to be worth it on the other margins to be willing to pay that cost
0: has anybody looked at simulation including that effect
1: i don't know that they have i've hardly. i haven't seen anybody even mention that effect besides me
0: well, I'll pass that along to some of you know, at the Santa Fe Institute, we have a number of epidemiology modelers in our uh, yeah. community. I will pass that idea along to them and maybe connect you guys up and uh, maybe some, somebody can run a model and say, all right, how good does the uh, social distancing effect have to be to overcome the uh, intensification effect?
1: Well, so, so the big trade-off is many people are hoping that we can just, with lockdown, shut this virus down and mean most people never get it. So, you know, if, you, if only 5% of people ever get this virus, then you're saving the other 95% and that's a pretty big gain. So you would be willing to pay a relatively large cost uh, increasing that, you know, 5% risk in order to save the other 95%. But if we're just talking about everybody getting it, but, you know, spreading that out over time, that's a harder trade-off in my mind, because first of all, you're, you're suffering the big economic cost over a much longer time of of the big lockdown and secondly of course you know its it's question is how much better is it to get sick when you're not near the peak of the pandemic because you get more medical resources you know is that a factor of 50 percent? is that a factor of five what is that gain in mortality of of getting the the medical treatment away from the peak so for example people focus on uh, ventilators uh, and you know making sure everybody has them but apparently people on ventilators, three quarters of them die anyway. <laughs> the benefit of a ventilator can't be much more than a quarter
0: right.
1: uh, in terms of mortality rates, which is nothing that's easy. I mean, if, if you can get that benefit, you want it. Uh, but again, you know, what are the, what, at what cost? So as I said, there's two uh, main effects that people haven't talked about. One is uh, this dose effect, increasing death rates in lockdown. And the other is the prospect of reducing death rates by just deliberately infecting people. And this is what they used to do with smallpox centuries ago. It was called variolation. And uh, again, it was considered this great historical triumph to drastically reduce death rates from smallpox, which were really wiping Europeans out. Of course, this was something the uh, Chinese and the uh, Indians and actually a great most, a great many of the Africans who were brought to the US as slaves, they had undergone this treatment back in Africa. And so, you know, say the United States this information was available to them, but they just refused to listen or believe until prestigious enough people from the Royal Society, et cetera, uh, talked about it.
0: Now, you have uh, been advocating straight up that uh, we consider uh, a program of uh, you know, structured variolation uh, to attack COVID-19. Could you tell us about your yeah.
1: ideas there? So as you know, a lot of people have a lot of ideas and a lot of ideas should be explored. There's many different vaccines people hope to test and they should be tested as fast as possible. But this variolation concept I consider just very reliable. I mean, the the odds are very high that it works. Of course, you still should test it. So I think we should try with a test of 100 or 1,000 people where you just try different ways to dose them and different ways it gets in the body, et cetera. Maybe antivirals as as a compliment. Well, but after that, I'm really quite sure at least you know 80 90 percent or more that uh, you'll get good results and then you know say a factor of five in death rates you can then uh, drastically reduce uh, how many people are affected now what you actually want to do is to uh, attract volunteers for this you don't necessarily have to force people that, uh, and then you have a place where they were go to get infected then stay isolated until they were covered uh, if you just infect people but then let them You know, go around then you're just accelerating the pace of the whole pandemic. Uh, Whereas if you isolate them as soon as you infect them you actually can be slowing down the pace of the pandemic and spreading out flattening the curve. Uh, So the key concept is after an initial trial of roughly a thousand figure out how to dose and you know properly infect people, uh, isolate them in what I call hero hotels where uh, you pay to go in and you can't leave until you're uh, recovered and uh, then try to get as many of these things open and as many as want to come in voluntarily and maybe even subsidize it, uh, get health plans to cover the costs, et cetera. And that's the key idea. Yeah,
0: certainly for the upfront cost, no reason not to incent it heavily. Pay $10,000, right? Uh, you'd get a shitload of volunteers for 10 grand, young and healthy people. who It's don't not just the money, though. They got a full debt.
1: I mean, you know, we're, we're a lot of people are really hurting because they can't work. <laughs> And they'd like to go back to work and And of course they'd like to socialize. And as soon as you are recovered from this, you are verified and certified to work and socialize.
0: Yeah, that'd be great. Part, you know, part of the deal is you maybe get a small stipend to, you know, to, to do it, and then you get a certificate that says you're immune. Uh, now, of course, that's assuming, which seems very, very likely from the history of viral infections, that you will get, you know, at least a year's immunity from an exposure. I have yet to see that definitively from anybody, though. Have you seen uh, any reports on whether an infection actually does give immunity?
1: So, the, the key concept Uh, is that when you recover, that is your immune system pushing it out. So at the moment of recovery, you are immune. I mean, that's what it means. Your immune system pushed it out. If your immune system wasn't involved, then of course uh, not, but almost always it's your immune system pushing it out. So the question isn't, are you immune? It's how long are you immune? And that depends on uh, basically the virus changing uh, over the coming Months and years. So there are some viruses that change really fast, such as HIV, in which case immunity hardly lasts at all. Uh, but that's very rare. So we, we have good reason to expect, just on the usual distribution of viruses, that this won't be such a thing. And we do see the mutation rate on this one being modest and typical, not enormous like HIV.
0: Yeah. In fact, I've read, and although this was before there was millions of hosts, that the uh, uh, mutation rate was quite a bit lower than influenza, which might indicate that you'd have uh, multi-year immunity.
1: Oh, of course, the mutation rate is proportional to the number of people who have it. <laughs> so uh, you wouldn't see a very high yeah. mutation rate in a, while, yeah. Just but a it's
0: not. Yeah, it. it's, it's yeah. that would be a very important number for uh, the CDC to be tracking and getting right. out to people who are thinking about these strategies. But it turns but the out the community is only three months, may not be worth the hero right. hotel.
1: Right, but, you know, we're, we're facing a really dire prospect here. Uh, you know, the, the odds are really quite good that basically over half the world will be infected in the next year um our attempts to suppress this are not going very well there's still hope and we should try but we need a plan b and a plan b that can cut death rates by a factor of 5 should be pretty damn tempting it should at least inspire a initial tests yeah, only- to figure out if it works
0: and not just the—it's it's really two parts that we win from this. One is cutting the death rate, but second uh, is managing the socioeconomic implications on the backside of the curve, uh, which is where our society really needs to start being focusing its attention. Because you know, if we don't handle this right, we could crash the whole socioeconomic system in a very ugly way. And the earlier we get people back to work in a safe fashion, the better. So I think your proposal actually addresses uh, two important factors
1: is that the prospect of a lockdown for say five years until a vaccine is finally delivered is really daunting. Uh, I mean, we, we can handle a lockdown for a couple of weeks, uh, but there's not really much prospect of ending this in a couple of weeks. What many people are hoping is that they could reduce it within a couple of weeks enough so that massive test and trace would, would hold it down. Uh, but even that is really ambitious. It, it's far more than we've ever done with previous pandemics. and. At the moment, this lockdown isn't actually cutting the growth rate to a negative growth rate. It might be slowing it to a, a, less, a lower positive growth rate, but it's still positive at the moment.
0: Well, well, United States, it came late. If we look what's happening in Italy and Spain and in California and Washington, the curves have been bent there. So I believe that uh, in those places that have put reasonable lockdowns on, we will see a bending of the curve in the next two weeks. Uh, but uh, your point is still well taken uh, to manage the backside of the curve is going to require a very dynamic dance of uh, really strong surveillance contact tracing, which the United States has sucked at, uh, and then the reimplementation of pretty draconian uh, social distancing in, in the new hotspots on the backside, because, you know, with a, a herd with no immunity, hotspots are going to reoccur, and if you let them spread, they're going to take off again. Uh, we do have some hope, though, from places like Taiwan and uh, Singapore and Hong Kong that with enough testing and with enough uh, uh, tracking and with strong enough uh, quarantining, maybe we can manage it for the year and a half until we have the vaccine.
1: Again, it's a week maybe. I mean, we should pursue it, but we really need a strong Plan B. Because most likely I we're going to need to invoke Plan B. Uh, so even places like Singapore and Japan, who seem to have been doing okay, as the places around them get more and more infected, They get more and more of a a wave of things coming across the border to handle and then it gets harder and harder. Um, And there's a basic fact about exponentials, exponential growth, is if you have a bunch of different exponential growths all added together, it's the highest growth rate that dominates. Uh, So unfortunately, uh, you know, if unless they can be completely isolated from one another, uh, whatever producing the highest growth rate, then it leaks into the rest, and then the total growth rate is dominated by the highest one. So it's not enough to point to the three best places. You have to wonder about the three worst.
0: We don't know what's gonna happen in the third world, uh, whether people, whether the warmer moister temperatures will uh, cause it not to go exponential, whether there's built-in immunities for similar things, who knows, but that could be uh, the actually untalked about major reserve if uh, you know the, the global south becomes, uh, utterly overwhelmed by this thing.
1: Well, even in the United States where we haven't traditionally had strong borders between the states, it just takes a few states like New York who don't keep it under control, who, for whom a lot of people leave and go to other places to overwhelm the good efforts of people in other places who would otherwise keep it locked down.
0: Very good. Well, I think this is a very important idea, and I hope that uh, people uh, think about it. I will pass it along to the modelers that I know at uh, Texas and Northwest, uh, Northeastern, uh, and where else? A few other places. the so People in our Santa Fe Institute community who are doing uh, state of the art. In fact, some of the, two of them are part of the team that uh, Trump uh, and his people are relying upon. Well, now, let's go talk to them. <laughs> okay, I will. Uh, I will make the offer.
1: Um, I, I did some modeling myself before I realized that this dose effect was an important deal, just of the idea of deliberate infection, even without a dose effect. And even there, I found gains and I analyzed the difference between deliberately infecting the young and healthy versus the old and sick and who else you might put in quarantines. And I found compared to sort of a baseline model where you randomly put people in quarantine, a model where you deliberately put the oldest people in quarantine and you deliberately infect the youngest people gives a 40% reduction in death rates. So I was pretty excited about that before I realized there were these factors of 330.
0: Cool. And you know these are folks who already have big, comprehensive models to take into consideration a whole bunch else. So
1: Absolutely.
0: perhaps you could merge merge. I would to-
1: <laughs> very much prefer somebody's professional experience model to be modified to include these infects rather than to rely on my amateur model. Yeah, I will I
0: will make those introductions as soon as, we're, uh, soon as we're done, or at least by the end of the day. Uh, on to our second topic. Uh, you know, you recently posted that, you know, long ago nations didn't have standing armies. You know, basically the United States didn't even have much of a standing army before World War II. I think our army was smaller than Portugal's. Uh, but today, you know, goddamn huge amounts are spent on standing armies all around the world. Uh, shouldn't we be getting serious? You know, this pandemic is not going to be the last one. Hell, we've had uh, four or five of them in the last 20 years. And you know, I've come around to the view, people talk about wisdom. It's a topic I've always been skeptical about seemed a little woo for my taste, but I've concluded that perhaps operational wisdom in the modern world consists of two things: one, understanding the concept of fat-tailed distributions, and the second, the concept of exponentials. And uh, pandemics look like they hit on both. I mean, it's a fat-tailed distribution. We're going to continue to have pandemics, and this is by far not the worst possible pandemic. You know, we could have something that uh, was more contagious and more lethal. Though there's a balance there, as we know epidemiology and so this idea of uh, you know building much greater standing capacity seems like a very good one. Uh, tell us more about that.
1: Well so that was just a, a tweet I made that some other people uh, resonated with and it does make sense but I'd like to focus less on capacity and more on flexibility. <laughs> so w- what I'm struck by is this very basic phenomena in, in the world in human history where and in history of biology where you tend to have a split between specialized solutions to um, to specialized problems and environments and more general flexible solutions that are better able to adapt to changes. So, for example, as you know, humans in particular, uh, we're not the fastest runners were not uh, the sharpest teeth etc. We specialized in being general and flexible and we found a niche where uh, in environments that changed rapidly enough or where we ranged over wide enough environments we could win compared to more specialized predators that we were competing against. And similarly in industry and society, uh, you may have a firm that's in a very stable industry and a very stable product and then co- along comes a new product or a new variation and they just fall apart because they haven't acquired flexibility and generality. They've just been tuned to that very particular environment. Whereas say like famously Intel or companies like that their motto was everything's going to be changing all the time. Don't get stuck with any one thing. constantly be ready for change and flexibility. And militaries similarly, as you may know, uh, many times in the past, uh, a military has lost a war because they were so ready for the previous war that they couldn't flexibly enough change and adapt to the new war. And part of the reason the allies won in World War II is that we happen to be exceptionally flexible compared to competitors. And uh, I'm concerned that not only our militaries over the last few decades haven't actually been facing difficult wars where they needed flexibility to win, but many of our other other social institutions have atrophied. Uh, Even our legal and regulatory institutions have uh, assumed an environment is going to be pretty stable as they've seen it. And then when you get a big disruption like the one we've just seen, they just can't adapt. They're just not ready for it. And honestly, that is some of the biggest problems we've seen with the response to COVID-19 is that our regulatory institutions, our medical institutions, just couldn't adapt very fast. They weren't ready for that. There was no place. So if you want to put a standing army in response to the to medical problems, I'm happy to devote the resources. But if you just give more resources to the same organizations run the same way, I fear they will atrophy in the same way. They will get locked down into rules and regulations and procedures that work well over stable decades and then fail terribly when all of a sudden things change fast and they need to adapt fast. And of
0: course, it's not just pandemics that this is about you know we uh it's you know financial panics, it's potential cyber attacks on our key infrastructure it's uh, solar flares uh in fact, one of the things i'm com- contemplating is that we really ought to have a department of wicked risks uh looking at uh complex systems risks uh that involve surveillance sense making decision making and then pass off the action uh doing to to other people. Uh, Because the thing that shocked me the most about this damn thing, a lot of things that shocked me about it, but one of them is how unbelievably inept the whole West has been uh, in taking a pretty damn clear signal by say the 20th of January that there was a non-trivial risk and some hedging ought to be done at, you know, the hundreds of millions of dollars of level uh, and partial mobilization begun just as an intelligent risk, the same way a, a trader with a portfolio would have hedged a risk when he saw a trend going adversely. And yet, as far as I could tell, uh, you know, the chief executives of the major countries uh, were, were caught blindsided and didn't, weren't even aware of this damn thing until the 1st of March. So there was you know, five or six weeks, which is about 10 doublings of the damn thing, uh, before the censors who had detected that there was something going on that needed to be hedged, and action and mobilization needed to be started, nothing happened. Are very, very little, and so the uh, you know the whole combination of monitoring and sense making and decision digestion just as you said, it seems to have atrophied and failed in our society in a way that is surprising and bad
1: so you know that the Romans had this policy to always be at war somewhere so that their military didn 't lose the edge and flexibility and experience to be able to fight a war. Um, the question now is. You, you can assign a budget in an agency and tell them to be flexible, but how do you make them actually be flexible? So we might ask, how did these Asian nations succeed in being more flexible? Uh, part of it is they are more autocratic, and you're looking at the high tail of the most functional autocratic ones and a lot of the low tail of the dysfunctional ones. Part of it is they, they faced SARS uh, and a, a scary epidemic just a decade ago, and so they created adaptations for that and were more ready for that. So we didn't face that, we weren't scared, so we didn't you know, set ourselves up for it. Um, I'm not sure what else to explain other than just sort of, look, over the last few decades, a lot more has been changing in Asia. <laughs> Their governance has had to deal with rapid rates of change in a lot of aspects of society, whereas ours has not. We, Our government and our society has been pretty stable for 70 years, and a lot of people think no need to change the way we do things, things have been going pretty well.
0: Yeah, I think that those are all real issues. Uh, And, of course, it also goes to our governance. I mean, again, look across the West. uh, The leadership that we have, uh, where's the Winston Churchill's? Where's the FDR's? Where's even the Joseph Stalin's, right? Uh, It's basically lightweights and clowns uh, that are the uh, uh, chief executives across most of the West,
1: right? And that can't be the formal system. It's still roughly the same formal system. That has to be culture and, you know, our informal, you know, professions and, and uh other habits.
0: Yeah, well unfortunately we've made the profession of politics toxic, right? Uh, you know, no FDR would put himself through the grinding humiliation of the current political process to become president of the United States when he could sit back fat, dumb, and happy in his, uh, with his millions of dollars on his estate. Uh, very, very few people. I, you know, I've posted on this uh, several times. that You know, I know 20 people personally who would be better chief executives of the United States than the current one. And that's just people I know, uh, but not a single one of them would run for dog catcher. Because of the, uh, you know, the negative consequences of putting your name out into the public sphere these days, I'm
1: afraid in a democracy the voters have to take a bit of the blame. <laughs> so, yeah, at the end of the uh, day,
0: they do. The voters and the institutions around the voters. Yes, the media, indeed.
1: Indeed. But well, the media responds to the voters largely. It's the voters who drive the media, and the voters who drive. Now, maybe you would think of like the institutions of law or civil service professionals. Uh, as also responsible for the resulting current state of those institutions and areas.
0: Yeah, I think we do need a a institutional cleanup. Maybe this will be a a call, probably not, but at least there'll be some people with ears to hear uh, that will start the process going. Well, Robin, I wanna thank you for, as always, uh, an incisive, intellectually powerful uh, conversation. And I think our uh, audience will have learned quite a bit. Nice to talk to you again. Uh, Great, great talking to you. It's always great. And I will uh, send those connections out to the epidemiologists uh, later today.
1: Okay, take care.
0: Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.